James Dent did a great piece in the Charleston, West Virginia Gazette about a man who heard that an operation had been developed to enable him to get a new brain. So he went to the hospital where it had been perfected, and he asked the doctors what was in stock. And uh, the conversation went this way. Well, they said, here is an excellent engineer's brain, finely honed, precise bit of gray matter. It will cost you $500 an ounce. Well, what else? The man wanted to know. This, they told him, is a lawyer's brain, a collection of shrewd, tricky little gray cells. It cost $1,000 an ounce. Well, is that all you have? No, they said. Here's a doctor's brain, packed full of anatomical knowledge. It is $5,000 an ounce. I don't know, said the fella. Don't you have anything else? Then the doctors looked at each other and motioned for the man to step over to a covered container. This, they said in hushed voices, is a politician's brain. Now, it costs $250,000 an ounce. Wow, exclaimed the fellow. Why so expensive? Well, in the first place, the doctors told him, it's hardly used. (laughs) In the second place, do you realize how many politicians you need to get one ounce of brains? (laughs) Now, with all due respect, and by the way, Politicians often become the scapegoat of our problems. We like to just blame everything on them, even though we as a nation elect them. But Israel wants a king at this point in their history. They want to go into politics. They had never done this before. Up to this point, the nation had been ruled by the prophet slash judge, beginning with Moses, who heard from God and gave the people God's word. And then Joshua, the general, who also heard from the Lord and led them out into battle, but he was not a king. Then there were judges, they're called, people who locally adjudicated over the issues and the affairs of the people. And then finally, Samuel, who is in effect the last judge and then also the prophet of Israel. But these people want a king. And from this point on, it will never be the same in their nation because Saul will manage to bring the people down to the level of chaos in the country. There were three guys that were having a conversation as to whose profession was the oldest profession. And it was a surgeon, an engineer, and a politician. And the surgeon said, you know, my profession is the oldest because if you read the Bible, it says that Eve was created by carving the rib of Adam. So the surgeon is the oldest profession. The engineer said, but if you read the Bible a little more carefully, you'll discover that in the beginning, in six days, God created the world out of chaos. That is the job of an engineer. Then the politician piped up and said, ah, but who made the chaos? (laughs) Now, it's not to imply that politics is evil. The opposite is true. Romans 13 tells us that government, the state, has been placed there by God. And these people become, in Paul's words, ministers of God. And I admire those who go into politics, who stand up for the truth. We need more good leaders in this country. So anyone who'd say, I feel like the Lord is leading me, listen, I'll pray for you. 
But I also know, I think we all also know, that it's not always the best people who preside in the political arena. It is often the worst. In fact, Daniel chapter 4 says, The most high rules in the kingdom of men, he gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. Now this marks in chapter 8 a transition in the nation of Israel from the way they were with the judge prophet to the monarchy. There will be King Saul, there will then be King David, there will then be King Solomon, and then the nation will eventually divide into two. Saul, and we only get a hint of what he will be like in chapter 8, is like the Old Testament equivalent of the carnal Christian in the New Testament. He never really lands never really settles spiritually. He's very volatile in his relationship with God. And what this lesson shows us this morning is that we can press God with our own will so much that we settle for second best rather than God's highest. That's the main thrust of it all. There's three words that describe this transitional period in Israel's history. Request, or we might say even demand, They demanded a king. Second is warning, and third is consent. They ask for a king, they request a king, then they are warned about what will happen, and then finally they get what they want. Let's look at that first one, request. Verse 1, It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, the name of the second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Look, you're old. Great approach, isn't it? (laughs) And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Give us a king, they said. God says they've rejected me. This begs a question at this point. Was having a king the will of God? Now some will say no. There never should have been a monarchy in Israel. God should have always used judges. In fact, that was the will of God, they will say, never a king. However... If we read the Bible a little more closely, we find that God had always planned to use a king eventually. Someday he would use a king. In fact, Genesis 49 and Numbers 24 predict the scepter, that governing, ruling authority that comes from a king. It's predicted. Deuteronomy 17, God says, Okay, you guys, when you finally get into the land that I promised to bring you into, You shall set over you a king whom I choose. That's the catch. Set a king over you whom I choose. 
Now they request a king and they're going to get Saul and it's not the guy God chooses. In fact, the whole request is wrong. It's the wrong timing, number one. It's years before David came on the scene. That was the one God said is the one after my own heart, not Saul. So it's the wrong timing. Second, it's the wrong tribe. The patriarch Jacob said the king will come out of the tribe of Judah. Saul comes out of the tribe of Benjamin. Third, it's the wrong emphasis. The people in chapter 9 will emphasize the fact that this guy looks great. Well, look at him. Look how handsome he is. I mean, that's king material. All the emphasis is on the outward, not the relationship he has with God, so that later on God will say, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, as so with David. So they beg for a king, and you should know that this is not the first time they ask for a king. This is the third time the nation of Israel asked for a king. The first time was the last book, the book of Judges, when Gideon becomes a mighty man of valor. And the people of Israel come up to Gideon one day and they say, rule over us. And Gideon's response is great. What, me rule over you? No, the Lord your God shall rule over you. That was the first time. The second time is when they took Gideon's son, Abimelech, And there was a coup that was staged in Shechem, and all the men of Shechem proclaimed him the king of Israel. didn't last very long. Now they come again to the prophet Samuel, the one that God has chosen as their prophet and judge. They say, give us a king. So it's the third time they ask for a king, and they will settle for God's second best, not his highest. Why did they ask for a king? What was their motivation? There's at least two reasons. I think there's three altogether. First of all, spiritual corruption had once again set in. If you notice in the first few verses, we have Samuel's kids who are placed as judges, who are after bribes. They are in it for the money. They're in it for the wrong reasons. And the people notice this. And they don't want the repetition of what happened under Eli and his sons. Um, Notice something, however, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. And in verse 5, the men very sensitively come up to him and say, Look, you're old. I did a little bit of reading, and I found something very discouraging. Most chronologists, historians, commentators, believe Samuel, chapter 8, was 50 years old. It's discouraging, isn't it? And they say, look, man, you're old. You wonder how young these guys are, the rest of them. Somebody once said, you know you're old when you've reached the metallic age. Your teeth are gold, your hair is silver, and you've got lead in your pants. (laughs) Samuel had none of that. He was 50 years old. But they say, you're old, man. And your sons are corrupt. They're after the bribe. Look at his sons in the scripture that we just read. The first is named Joel. His name means Yahweh is God. The second is named Abijah. His name means Yahweh is my father. Great names to have in the ministry. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is my father. Great names. Wrong heart. They did not live up to their names. Reminds me of the letter Jesus wrote to the church of Sardis in the New Testament. He said, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. You can have the right label, 
but the heart can be far from what the label is supposed to represent. They had a name. I'm going to read between the lines for just a moment. I don't know this is true, but it could be that Samuel's own commitment, let's call it overcommitment, perhaps, to the tabernacle, to the ministry, to the business of the nation, perhaps that overcommitment kept him from involving himself in the lives of raising his sons. So that there's a corruption that is set in. He has intended that home flame, just like his mentor, Eli, with Hophni and Phinehas, his own sons. And so they become the proverbial PKs, prophets' kids, stereotypical the bad guys on the block, after for the wrong reasons. I find it strange, in fact, I find it disheartening that Samuel would even put his sons in such a position and say, okay, I'm going to make you guys the judges. You know, a lot of times this happens where blood is thicker than anointing. Uh, those in the ministry or those in business will want to get their kids to get a life. And perhaps they think, well, he can't get a life unless I give him one. So I'm just going to give him this high exalted position without really, without really gauging the heart of the person. And you cannot pass on a relationship with God by decree or position. And perhaps that was the mistake that he made. Nonetheless, the people request a king because of it. Also, there's another reason. They want national identity. Look in verse 5. They say, give us a king that we can be like all the rest of the guys, all the other nations around us. Now, the other nations had a king. They had a monarch. They had a central government. The king led them out to battle. The king rallied the support and the causes of the nations, but not of Israel. They never had a king up to this point. Israel was different. In the previous books, in the previous history of the nation, it was God who fought their battles. The Red Sea. Did a king pull that off? Did a king say, okay, watch this. And then destroy the Egyptians? No, it was God who did it without a king. And what about the battle of Jericho? Did a king cause those walls to fall down? No, God sovereignly did. And as soon as chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, the Philistines are destroyed without a king, they're routed and Israel is delivered by God's power. In fact, I would say the strength of Israel lay in the fact that they were unlike all of the other nations. They were different. They had the Lord their God without a central government, without a king. It was absolutely a theocracy, not a monarchy. And that was their strength. Back in Leviticus 18, it was Moses who warned them. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you, you shall not do. Do not walk in their ordinances. What's he saying? Be different. Don't be like all the other nations. Now they want to conform and be like everybody else. What is it they want? They want visible leadership. You can't see God. Okay, Moses comes and says, Thus saith the Lord, or Joshua, or a judge, or a prophet. But they want somebody, I believe, that is visible in their leadership. We have a tough time when we cannot see the one we say we trust. 
Paul said we walk by faith, not by sight. But I think if you're honest, you would admit you don't like it any more than I do. Walking by faith is difficult. We want to know the check's in the mail. We want to know the money's in the bank. We want to know the bills are being paid. This trust the Lord business, that's too nebulous. We want to see something. When I was in college, I learned a lesson that God keeps trying to teach me all the time. A lesson of trust. Um, I was a gourmet cook back in college. I was great with this great uh, uh, meal called Hamburger Helper. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. The finest restaurants serve it. You take this mix in a box and you put it with hamburger and water and you mix it up and it makes a meal. lasted me a week. But I ran out of hamburger and I just had helper. And I ran out of helper and I had in the cupboard peanut butter and bread. And so I made peanut butter sandwiches. My check hadn't come yet. You know, I'm trusting here. Toward the end of that stint, I ran out of bread. So I had a jar of peanut butter and a spoon. I'm going, God, you're talking your servant here. A couple days later, went to the mailbox, and to my delight was a check from the government. Income tax had come. And I opened that check up, and I rejoiced in the Lord, my God. Provision, all right. And it was as if God spoke to my heart and said, how do you know, uh, how do you know you'll get that money? <laughs> what do you mean, God? This is the government. They made me a promise. And it was as if God spoke to my heart and said, you didn't get all that excited when you read my word this week and I promised to take care of you. You had my promise. You never cashed that. You never relied on that, that, hey, I'm going to take care of you. It was a lesson. I I started wanting that visible security. And whenever we trust without visible security, we are tempted to conform to the world. I want what the world has, God. I don't know about just trusting you. Paul said, do not be conformed to this world. Be, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Better translation is the Phillips. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. Be different. Revel in the fact that you are. There's a further problem I see, however. The root of the problem is in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should reign over them. Samuel took it personally. You can understand it. He had given his life to be the judge of this people. He had His whole life revolved around ministering to them. And now they say, We want your resignation. We don't want your kids. You're done. You're old. Get out of the picture. We want a king. And don't you love the fact that God personally comforts Samuel? The God of all comfort says Samuel. It's not that they're against you, man. They're against me. They don't want my control over their lives. That's why they're asking you for a king. They've rejected me. Now, we need to remember that. When you get somebody who works with you or is part of your family... They may hear a biblical truth. They may know the Bible says something. And they just don't like the fact that God would stand for that or God would say that. And so since they can't see God, they find the visible representative of God, which is either the preacher or the person at work who says he's a believer. And they'll get mad at you. They'll get angry at you. Think, gosh, why are they so mad at me? They're mad at God. They're taking it out on you. 
You are visible. God is invisible. Now, here's my point. Complaining and discontentment is often simply symptomatic of a person who refuses to let God have control. We complain about our lot in life. In effect, we're complaining about God who allowed us to come to that point sovereignly. Or perhaps we make some dumb move and we pay the consequence. Why did you allow that? Hello? But the root cause isn't national identity. It's not really corrupt leadership. The root cause is they don't want God to rule over them. That's their request. The second word is warning. God sends the prophet back to them to warn them. Verse 9. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king that will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked for a king. He said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. Some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground, reap his harvest, some to make his weapons of war, equipment for the chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, vineyards, olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage, give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. That's a warning. God is saying, okay, Samuel, go back to them, give them what they want, but it's only fair that you warn them since they've chosen this, that here's the end result of your choice. This is, if you walk this path, what's going to happen. You see, Saul was not God's choice. He was the people's choice. And he was very self-serving. He was very self-oriented. And the power of being a king would go to his head. And this would result. By the way, power is very intoxicating. And that's why some people want power. Because the control, it gets to their head. And it can ruin them. Thomas Jefferson, our third president, said something interesting. He said, whenever a man casts a longing eye at political offices, a rottenness begins in his conduct. That thirst to control and that power. So the warning, verse 10 through 14, there's going to be a burden on your family. They're going to take your boys. He's going to draft them into military service. They're going to work for him. He's going to take your daughters and they're going to work in the palace. You'll lose the best vineyards and olive groves that you have. A form of slavery will develop. Second, there'll be a burden on your finances, verse 15. He's going to demand a tenth. It's called taxes. You want a government? It'll be taxes. Something they had never known before. The taxes would start at 10%. That's interesting because God said, give me a tenth as part of the worship. It's going to cost them as much as it costs to serve God to have a king. That's just the beginning. It starts at 10, but by the time of Solomon, the taxation is out of sight. It's outrageous. The people are breaking because of it. We've all heard that death and taxes are inevitable, right? 
Somebody once said, death and taxes may be inevitable, but death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. But taxes do, and taxes did in this land of Israel. Third, there would be a burden of fatigue. They would get weary of their choice, verse 18. And you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. The warning is you're going to live to regret this. Eventually you will cry out and say, oh, I made the worst choice. Shouldn't have done it. Now here they are exchanging God who gave them land, gave them protection, gave them his leadership. And they're ready to give it all up and give it to a king who will give them nothing in return. Isn't it funny how they were willing to look to the government to solve their problems when God says the government will become the problem? Now, I'm not here to disparage government. Once again, Romans 13, and we're teaching Romans on Wednesday night. Romans clearly tells us that we should pay taxes and submit to the laws of the land. But if you think government's going to solve your problems, you're sadly mistaken. In fact, in fact, we all know the tendency, not only of power to corrupt, but of bureaucracy to sort of squelch everything that is meaningful. We just become heavy laden in government. Here's an example. The Lord's Prayer contains 56 words. The Gettysburg Address, 266 words. The Ten Commandments, 297 words. The Declaration of Independence, 300. And a recent U.S. government order setting the price of cabbage, 26,911 words. Cabbage prices. It's a lot of words. Okay, verse 19 Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Pretty headstrong, isn't it? They insisted. No way. Listen, I know the consequence is great. Tough. I want it anyway. There are none so blind as those who will not see. There are none so deaf as those who will not hear. Samuel says, okay, you're begging for a king. This is the third time. This is what he's going to do. Give us a king anyway. They dug their heels in. They were stubborn about it. Now, if, if you live life that way, where you just, when you hear truth, dig your heels in, let me just warn you. There's a wall ahead of you somewhere. You're looking for a crash somewhere along the line. I could give you many examples. One was a couple that came to me and they insisted that they should get married. Now, I knew this couple a little bit and I knew what their tendencies were and some of the problems in their previous relationship. And I said, you know, I don't think it's a good thing. I think you ought to wait a while and really establish this a little longer. No. They got a justice of the peace. They got married. Six months later, they came back and they said, Oh, I wish we would have listened. It's no way to live. It's never worth saying we could have, we should have, but we didn't. It's not the right way to live. And yet they did at this point. Brings us to the third word, and that is consent. Look how the chapter finishes off. 
Verse 20, Samuel heard all the words of the people, repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, here it is, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. Now, why did God give in? You might say give in. Why did God consent when he knew it would be bad for them? Couldn't God have stopped them? I mean, certainly he could have. He, he did it when Balaam, that prophet, was on his way to Balak to curse the children of Israel. And God stopped him by having his donkey ram his foot into a wall once he saw an angel. In fact, God was so dramatic, he had the, the donkey given the ability to talk in a human voice. A miracle indeed. Balaam was so lame that he starts having a conversation with his donkey. Instead of going, whoa, this is impossible. Well, let me tell you a few things, donkey. (laughs) But nonetheless, God dramatically stopped him from making a mistake. Why didn't God do it here? I believe because the school of experience is sometimes the best. There are some who will listen to the precept. There are some who need the school of hard knocks. Some have graduated with honors, by the way. The curriculum is tough, it's high, but some work best that way because they just don't listen to the precept. An example, when God wanted to get a hold of Samuel, all he had to say was his name. Hey, Samuel, here I am, Lord. And finally, speak, Lord, your servant hears. And he heard his whole life he was compliant. But then you have a guy like Jacob. And Jacob, you remember, the scripture says, wrestled with God from night all through the night till morning. Until God had to cripple him and he finally said, okay, I give up. Or Saul of Tarsus. God had to knock him off of his horse, pin him to the ground, and he said, what would you like me to do, God? Uncle. It's no way to live, but some people live best that way. So if you can't learn by the school of precept, God has another school. He presides over both, the school of hard knocks. Experience is sometimes the best teacher. Listen to this text. Proverbs 15.10 sums it up. Harsh correction is for him who forsakes the way. Harsh correction is for him who forsakes the way. You might say, well, that's not very loving. Oh, I submit to you, it's the height of love. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, the Bible says. Let's look at it a little more uh, spelled out, shall we? Turn to the book of Psalms for a moment. Psalm 81. There's about three or four verses that we should look at because it sums up the whole episode. Psalm 81. Let's pick it up in verse 10 of Psalm 81. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people would not heed my voice. Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Oh, that, listen to God's heart. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. 
Oh, I want to fill your mouth with good things. But you refused to the extent that I said, fine, have your own way. But I wish you had the right heart. Now, be careful here. That does not mean that God gives us every lame thing we ask for. Any more than if your child who is two years old said, Mommy, I'd like to play with the hatchet. I think you would say, no. But Israel was a little older. They were like the adolescent who insisted on his way over and over again. And here's the point. If, if you're stubborn and you're going to do it anyway, then God will send you to school. Fine. You're not listening in this school of precept. Here's another one. The wall. It would be helped to organize in our minds some of the differences in the will of God. There is, first of all, the sovereign will of God. That is what God decrees will come to pass. You can't change it. He says, this is going to happen, and he makes it happen. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. That's God's sovereign will. But then secondly, there's God's preceptive will. And that is what God prefers to come to pass. He states it in the precept of Scripture. Here is my will. I want this to be done. Obey this. But then third, there is God's permissive will, what God permits to be done, even though it's sometimes against his preceptive will. There are certain times God will say, fine, have it. I'll allow it. It's wrong, but go ahead because you have a choice and I will respect that up to a point. Example. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do all come to repentance? No. God's will is that all come to repentance, but all don't come to repentance. Also in 1 John chapter 2, he said, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. But do you sin? Oh, I do. Maybe you don't, but I do. I write these things that you'll not sin. Oh, but then he says this, but if any man sin, glad he put that in. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Here's my preceptive will. However, here's my son who died on the cross for you, the advocate. So in this case, God directly wanted to rule over them at this point in their history. They rejected God's rulership. They were willing to settle for second best. Down the totem pole they go. Here's the principle. God seeks to bring you to the highest possible level you allow him to bring you to. And he'll do the best for you at that level. But he won't force you to go there. And we, by our own hardness, recalcitrance, obstinance, can settle for second or third, best, or even lower than that. An example is the prodigal son. Man, he had it made. He had a dad who loved him. He had a dad who was taking care of him. But the prodigal son came to his dad one day and said, I want my bucks and I want it now. I want my inheritance before you die. And he went out and he spent it all on riotous living. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And when he lost everything, he came to himself. And he said, man, I had it. Even my dad's slaves have it better than I have it. I'm going to tell him I've sinned against heaven and against him. Oh, if he just received me back. So if you won't learn by the school of precept, then experience is often the best teacher. And that concludes our lesson.
But I'd like to just leave you with a few personal points to take home. Let's just sum it up and recap, shall we? Number one, neglecting God's lordship is a dangerous pattern that must be stopped. Neglecting or rejecting God's lordship is a dangerous pattern that must be stopped. The issue isn't just have you accepted the Lord. The issue is have you accepted the Lord's control over your life? Corrie ten Boom put it beautifully. She said, don't bother to give God instructions. Just report for duty. What is it you want? Lord, if he is the Lord, then he is in charge. Second, complaining often indicates spiritual rebellion. You're complaining and discontent about your lot in life when you say, I trust God. That means God has somehow either allowed you to be there by his providence or his direct will, or perhaps you by your own choices are suffering a consequence and let God make it best and take you to the highest level. But complaining often indicates spiritual rebellion. We love to blame others. The problem is often here, isn't it? It's like the couple who went into the service station, the gas station, and this was in the era when there was things called full service. service. They were service stations. (laughs) They would wash your windows and check the oil and tip the hat and say good morning. Some of you don't even remember those days. I barely remember those days. (laughs) Find that person. No, actually, I worked in a service station doing that. <laughs> they pull up to the service station. The old man driving the car, kind of a grumpy old guy, and he, he watches the attendant wash his windows, and he growls, Wash them again! They're still dirty. So the attendant complies, washes the windows again. The old man looks at him and says, Don't you know how to wash windows? They're still dirty. Just then, his wife lovingly reaches across the seat takes her husband's glasses off and cleans them nicely, puts them back on his eyes, and voila! The windows are spotless. The problem wasn't on the outside, but it was with his own sight, his own glasses. Complaining often indicates spiritual rebellion. The third lesson we pick up is that the world is attractive, it has a powerful pull, and wants you to conform to be just like it. Don't do it. Be different. Don't conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or in the words of the Apostle John, 3 John 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. One of our biggest fears is that we're going to be rejected by the crowd, the group, our peers. Be approved by God. Fourth lesson, a wise person will consider the end of the path before he decides to walk on it. He won't just say, I want a king, man. I want what I want no matter what. That's not wisdom. A wise person will think, what's at the end of the road? Remember Jesus said concerning the narrow way? Narrow is the way that leads to life. Life. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. So the wise person will look at those two paths and go, life, destruction. This might look hard. This might look great. But in the end, it's very, very different. And I'll consider that. We have friends who love to whitewater raft. They go on the Rio Grande every year, but you can see the end and the beginning. Now, what if they decided to go on the 
river just above Niagara Falls. Beautiful river, but it's that end part. It's the real kicker. Plummeting over the falls. Bad ending. Fifth and finally, stubbornness has lasting consequences. If you dig your heels in and refuse to comply with the will of God, you know what it means? You're going to settle for second best or third or fourth. It's not worth it to be stubborn. Is there an area that you maybe know you are stubborn in? God has been trying to get at and be Lord over and work with. You've just said, no way, man. Could be that God will say, congratulations, you've just been transferred to a new school. School of hard knocks. Did you hear about the patient who went to the psychiatrist? And he said to the doctor, he said, I'm dead. I know that I'm dead. The psychiatrist said, you think you're dead? I know I'm dead. Psychiatrist said, now that's impossible. We're having a conversation. Dead people don't speak. Well, I know I'm dead. So let me ask you a question. Do dead people bleed? Patient said, no, of course not. They're dead. Good. Give me your finger, he said. He poked it and blood came out. He said, now what does that prove? He said, goodness gracious, dead men do bleed. (laughs) Is your stubbornness keeping you from enjoying life that God has for you now? Abundant life, the higher life, walking with Him in compliance with His will. No way to live, to look back and say, oh, wish I would have. Now, whatever level you are at now, even if you have settled for second best in an area, determine to allow God to bring you up to the highest at that, pos- at that level and do the very best He possibly can. And from that point on, serve God with all of your heart. It's worth it. And Father, we pray for that. We pray, Lord, that your ways, your will would matter to us, would be preeminent with us. We pray, Father, that uh, your spirit would speak to us in, in, in the area maybe where we're just discontent and complaining. And the real issue is that we have to search a little bit deeper. The problem's on the inside. The problem's in acknowledging and allowing your control. That old axiom from TV comes to mind, Father knows best. You do know best, Lord. You see the end from the beginning. You see the end of the path. We don't. We just see the door. So, Lord, I pray that a new trust would develop. Even though we can't see you, and we do walk by faith and not by sight, as difficult as it is, it's the most wonderful way to live. Keep us at that point in Jesus' name. Amen.